1: I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. Hello. hello, hello, hello. Welcome. <laughs> Science, and that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith, and this is the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. This week, it's Q&A time, and we're going to explore how addictions begin, how do forensic pathologists discover poisons in the body, and you've heard of black holes, but what's a white hole? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by (laughs) UKfast.co.uk. And with us to answer your science questions this week are a panel of people who include Matt Bothwell, who's an astronomy specialist at the University of Cambridge. What have you been up to, Matt?
2: Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've got very into 3D printing, actually. So we have a 3D printer now in the department, uh, so I've been busy 3D printing these nice models of galaxies, which I'm a handing A model of a galaxy?
1: My... How, how on earth do you 3D print a galaxy? Uh,
2: well, you basically take an image, right, and then you just convert the brightness of the image to the height of the 3D model, so you end up with something that looks a bit like a, a relief map of a galaxy, basically.
1: you give them me here, it looks a bit like a bathroom tile, but right. it's got lumps and bumps on it. So what's this all about? Because it's, it's effectively a flat galaxy, like a, we say the Milky Way is a disc. This is a basically a bathroom tile with a galaxy printed on it in lumps and bumps.
2: It's a very nice way of uh, communicating astronomical ideas to people with visual impairments uh, because you know astronomy is a very visual field, right? So there's a lot of pretty pictures and uh, stuff like that. If you're not a sighted person, then you're cut off from all of that. And so being able to make 3D models of things is a really nice way of uh, reaching people that might not otherwise be able to appreciate. So you've got these astronomical
1: things. Braille here. Yeah, exactly. It's very cool, isn't it? So I suppose that this means for a blind person, instead of actually trying to envisage what a solar system like ours and then even bigger than that a galaxy looks like by running your fingers over you can get some sense of scale and shape and structure
2: exactly yeah so yeah you know, if you never got to see a picture of these things and you just had someone describe it to you you'd be missing a lot of the richness of what one really was right but mm. yeah being, being able to kind of feel it in a tactile way is, you know gives just as much information as seeing it really and
1: what do blind people say about it if you show it to them
2: i think generally that it's very very well appreciated the uh, university of portsmouth has had a version of this called the tactile universe going on for a long time and it yeah, it's very successful.
1: Matt thanks very much for showing it to me I I had some inkling that people were going to do something like that but I've not seen them and I can see why that would be very effective so thanks very much for introducing me sitting next to Matt is forensic toxicologist Lorna Nisbet hello Lorna what are you going to tell us about
3: I work at Anglia Ruskin University and so we have been really kind of trying to look at cause of death and the um, increasing poisons that have been happening with regards to drugs. Sadly, last year was the highest year for deaths relating to drugs and overdoses and so we are trying to look at reasons behind this and what we can try and do within the community. Mm-hmm.
1: Record numbers of people are dying, but they're also dying in record numbers of novel ways, isn't it? It's not just one drug that's killing everybody. We've got a whole panel of chemicals that people are now dying of.
3: Yeah, we do have all of the new psychoactive substances. However, the number of new psychoactive substances coming out each year is starting to decrease but what is slightly worrying is the new um, synthetic opioids that are coming out, so the kind of fentanyl derivatives that we've been hearing about. We are quite lucky, Touchwood, to not have a huge problem with that with regards to like, what we see in the States. But it is making our jobs as toxicologists much more difficult.
1: You can tell us later on how you're going about detecting those. Thanks very much, Lorna. Also here is Camilla Nord, who's a, a neuroscientist, psychologist. You know how the brain works. Welcome. What would you like to talk to us about this week?
4: Well, I I suppose I've brought a myth and it isn't actually what I work on in my research. But what I work on is I'm a neuroscientist who's interested in psychiatric disorders. And one of the main themes that comes out when you're trying to understand brain differences that manifest in different mental health disorders is that the group is not the same as the individual. And sometimes differences that look really important at the level of two groups don't allow us to identify an individual in in any way whatsoever. So the myth that I've brought runs along the lines entirely. It's the myth that there's a male brain and a female brain. Much like looking at different sorts of psychiatric disorders, if you collapse across every female brain in a very large sample for a specific region of the brain and every male brain in a large sample for a specific region of the brain, there's a handful of regions that look systematically different between male and female brains. But the problem at the level of the individual is that if you look at each of these regions and you say, oh, there's a male size and a female size, almost every brain shows more of a mosaic of male versions and female versions of these different bits of the brain. So, in fact, there is no true male brain or female brain.
1: Also, is it not reasonable to say, well, look, there's, there's probably 100 billion nerve cells in the brain and they're all interconnected with each other and some of these areas might be a different shape or size in in a person who's male compared to a person who's female. But at the same time, all these other regions of the brain might be different in a different way. So the degrees of freedom, the number of variations is enormous. So although it might be smaller in one particular area, on average in, say, women in that bit of the brain, there might be another region of the brain that actually is bigger to compensate or is doing something else and vice versa. So it's it's a very different problem, isn't it? It's not, it's not a simple thing to say it's this structure in men and this structure in women.
4: Yes, that's a very good point about the difference between structure and function, um, which I think you're getting at there. But even just in structure, I think the, the argument is quite compelling that most brains are a sort of mix of male bits and female bits.
1: And you can tell us more about how the brain works later in the programme. Thanks very much. That's Camilla Nord. And also here is physiologist Sam Virtue. And you're going to lay down the gauntlet before us, Sam.
0: So, yeah, so I was thinking about this as January came round, because over Christmas we all eat... Well, most of us eat a lot more food than we should and we put on weight. And I think we all can think about putting on weight as putting on fat. And then in January, we kick in with our New Year's resolutions and we start to try and lose weight. And, but I was thinking about this and I wonder if people here can tell me where they think the weight that they're losing goes.
1: What you mean as in when you, when you become less heavy on the scales, where has the weight that, that has gone off your hips Indeed. gone
0: to? Exactly. Where does it go to?
1: Anyone like to speculate?
3: Is this, I'm going to do like a kind of QI, big massive buzzer moment, I imagine here. (laughs) But surely it's your body using all of your fat and you're using it as energy and you're burning it off in terms of like movement and reduced calorie intake.
0: Well, so the reducing calorie intake will make you lose weight. But to lose the weight, Physical fat. If you lose a kilo of fat, it's got to go somewhere. Matt, is it? I think I remember hearing this somewhere. You breathe it out. Is that right? So yeah. So basically, fat is made of three things: carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so we can get rid of the hydrogen and oxygen in two ways. We turn it into water, and we can lose the water in our urine, um, or we can also lose the water in our breath. Um, however, the carbon. We can, only, we can only lose it from our bodies as carbon dioxide. So when you go on a diet, you lose all your weight by breathing it out in
1: essence. You literally breathe your weight into the atmosphere. Because it's similar. Someone said to me once, um, I don't really get this whole point about how can, how can you have a mass of carbon dioxide? When we're talking about emissions and they talk about tons of carbon dioxide, your carbon footprint is 4 to 12 tons how can a gas weigh anything and you say well the fuel that you put in your car for example that tank of fuel weighed as much as one of your passengers and when the tank is empty the car has lost mass where has the mass gone well it's gone out the exhaust pipe therefore that mass of carbon which was in that fuel has turned into a mass of gas which has gone out of the exhaust pipe it still weighs something it's still atoms and it's just that when it's in the atmosphere it's floating on the rest of the atmosphere so it doesn't appear to weigh anything but it certainly has mass so it's an interesting question camilla
4: does that mean your carbon footprint increases if you lose weight and perhaps we should all have a couple more slices of cake in january
0: (laughs) i mean you are technically correct and i'm not going to go into any further
1: details It is intriguing to think you've breathed yourself out, though, isn't it, as you slim down. Sam, thank you for that. Now, before we dive into the questions, we've also got a guess-who quiz, which we run throughout programmes like this one. There'll be clues coming up across the hour. Here's the first clue. This thing sounds like this. And listen carefully, because it's just a short clip. (whistles) Lots of dogs probably pricking up their ears at that. That's the sound it makes. Like to speculate what it is, or if you know, let us know. Now, Matt, let's kick off with one for you. We've got this email from Mark and his six-year-old grandson who's called Jack, and they say, why is the moon just the moon? All the other moons get cool names, like Mars has Phobos and Deimos, for example. So why has our moon got a boring name, Moon?
2: Uh I love this question so much. It's such a good question. And because you are absolutely right, the moon, uh, we're so used to it as a name, it feels very boring, right, compared to the lovely and evocative names from the rest of the solar system, like you mentioned Phobos and Deimos, and yet some moons have Shakespearean uh, names like Oberon and all these kinds of things. The answer really is that we've known about our own moon for a very, very long time, almost to the point where it's hard to say that the moon was discovered, right? I mean, all you have to do is look up and it's it's there half the time. So we've, we've known about the moon through all of human history, really. All the other moons in the solar system are very, very tiny and need telescopes to be able to see them. And telescopes didn't come on until a few hundred years ago. So the moon was named thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, Our word moon actually comes from the name month because the moon takes one month to go on one orbit, one trip uh, around the Earth. So that's where the word moon comes from.
1: Yeah, because the lunar cycle, when it goes full moon and then into a, a waning moon, when it goes in three quarters, quarter, back to invisible again.
2: Right, exactly. And that was a way that they used to measure time. The reason the word measure and moon sound similar, because the, yeah, the original word that gave the root of moon is the same as the root of the word measure, because it was the original measurement. Yeah. Uh, And menstruation as well, isn't it? Because they
1: actually said that's a 28-day cycle, which is roughly the same length, just by chance, I understand. So nothing to do with the moon. But uh, that was also a 28-day
2: cycle, so people said, well, it's something to do with the moon. must be, mustn't it, because it's the same length of time, and so it got the same name. Um, Other languages also have very uh, nice and evocative names for the moon as well. So we say moon in English, uh, but in Latin they say luna, for example. So, Matt. You've reminded
0: me of a question I've had about the moon for a long time, and I'm sorry if I put you on the spot here. No, no, this is exciting. Is it just coincidence that the same side of the moon always faces us, or is there
2: some some funky physics at play? Uh, The answer is very much funky physics. Um, So the reason the same side of the Moon faces us all the time uh, is not actually because the Moon doesn't rotate, because it does. Uh, It's that the moon's how long it takes the Moon to spin on its axis is exactly the same as how long it takes for the Moon to go on one orbit around the Earth. That's a process called tidal locking. Uh, So when you have two bodies that are quite close to each other in space, uh, the the rotation periods and the orbital periods get synced up in this way.
1: One other question that, because um, Sam's got me thinking now, someone asked me the other day, when we have an eclipse and you have a total eclipse, is it just fluke that the moon is just the right size to completely cover the sun the way that it does in our particular neck of the, the solar system?
2: Uh, so the answer to that one is just fluke, yes. In fact, in the future, that won't be true. The moon is actually travelling away from the Earth by about a centimetre per year. And so if you go to uh, you know, maybe 500 million years or a billion years in the future, the moon will be too small and we won't get eclipses anymore. So make the most of it
1: while you can. Get in <laughs> quick. Thank you very much for that one, Matt. Lorna, this is a question from Megan, and she says...
4: How do you detect different poisons in the body?
1: So, this is very much your bag... Lorna, how do we find when someone's got a a poison in their body or if we think they've been poisoned, how would you go about ferreting it out and finding out what it is?
3: So we don't start off completely blind as forensic toxicologists. We'll get in some sort of paperwork from a pathologist that will indicate whether they want just a general toxicology screen or whether pills have been found at the scene or if they find any needle marks on them that might indicate any sort of opioid abuse you know like heroin users for example. So that might give you
1: excuse the pun a point and that might point you towards something to look for.
3: Yeah if we look at the amount of drugs that are now out there we're now at the point where we're looking for a needle in a haystack so any sort of information is really helpful for us. And so then what we will do is we will basically do a kind of screen and we will run the blood sample or the urine sample through some of our instrumentation so it will tell us whether we may have some sort of opiate and it will look it down into the class of drug that we're looking at.
1: Are there any clever crafty molecules that will escape that screen? So if I wanted to do the master plan criminal mastermind sort of murder I could give a drug and by the time someone like you got near the body it will have gone I'm not I'm not planning any of this anybody I'm not trying to give people ideas but is that possible?
3: If you are going to try and plan the perfect murder which you can't generally do anymore you will get caught out at some point it might just take slightly longer try and get something that's going to be eliminated out of the body really quickly and those drugs are typically actually used for um, really sinister crimes, so drug-facilitated sexual assault. A lot of the drugs are used for that because by the time somebody wakes up for example the drugs has gone out their system so something like ghb is really fast eliminating heroin is another one so it will start off as heroin and then within about five minutes your body will already have started to break that down so you have to either know how long that drug is going to stay in the body and what the biomarkers that you're going to be looking for are
1: someone asked me the other day sounds a bit macabre this but they were saying because carbon monoxide poisoning mm-hmm. the way that kills people is by asphyxia isn't For instance, if someone died in a a hotel room that had a poor heating system and they breathed in the gas, it binds to your haemoglobin so you can't get oxygen around your body because there's haemoglobin blocked up with carbon monoxide rather than haemoglobin ready to receive oxygen. Do people go looking for the carbon monoxide under those circumstances? Or if you just happen to have access to a cylinder of carbon monoxide and you poison someone with it and there's no other reason why they might be exposed, would would you get away with that or do they look for that?
3: No. So um, carbon monoxide poisoning is actually relatively easy to spot from a toxicologist's point of view. Everybody thinks that forensic science is really glam and glorious and we all run around and we solve crimes and we go and we see loads of dead bodies and we actually don't we just get the bits so we get you know the urine samples and the blood samples come through and when people die funny things happen to their body so most of the time the blood that comes through is kind of greenish or it's really lumpy or there's large fat deposits in the top it's you know it's really glam but when somebody comes through and they've died of carbon monoxide poisoning their blood's really cherry red and so when you've got a really cherry red sample that's the first thing that you're probably going to try and look for.
1: So someone like you would spot that? Yeah. You you would go there so don't try that one anybody who's who's thinking about that one. Thank you very much for that Lorna. Now Camilla over to you we've got this question from Molly who says um, can we use brain scans to diagnose mental disorders is there anything we could spot on a scan in the same way as we could do an x-ray for say tuberculosis or a cancer for example could you do an equivalent thing and look for changes in the brain that might single out someone as having a mental disorder or a risk of one
4: it's it's a very reasonable question and one from a research perspective that i'm very interested in but from a clinical perspective my answer is a bit like the male and female brain answer which is that at a group level. There are several reproducible differences between brains with, say, major depressive disorder and brains without. And this is on an anatomical level, but it's also on a level of kind of connectivity or function of different regions in the brain. So there are lots of different scales at which we can measure those group differences. But at the moment, there aren't reliable differences that we could use to categorise a brain into one category or the other. And that's a sort of scientific problem. But then there's also, I would argue, a kind of clinical problem, which is what do you do with a false positive? If somebody has a depressed brain but they're not depressed, then that's meaningless.
1: So you have to say to them, well, you should be depressed, but you're not.
4: Quite. So we would always need this criterion of functional impairment, which exists at the moment in diagnoses and which could never be replaced by brain scan, even if, as I hope, they become much more useful in the treatment of mental health disorders.
1: That said, some degenerative disorders or some things like schizophrenia, for example, they are associated with changes in the shape and structure of the brain in the long term, aren't they? So you can look at a brain scan and you can see that something has changed. You wouldn't necessarily know that person has schizophrenia, but you could see that there were structural changes to the brain in some people.
4: Yes, the same would be true of major depressive disorder, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same changes in every single person with that disorder, which is an issue.
1: Do you think there's a likelihood we'll get a test in the future that could be based on imaging for things like depression because there's a lot of people who really are depressed but there are lots of people who they know at the moment the doctors struggle to actually do a definitive test for this diagnosis so they might be tempted to say oh i've got anxiety and depression and actually they don't because they know that they can get away with it the people who are seeking to, to subvert the system is there any way that perhaps in the future we could have a test that will enable us to do this
4: I think there are two things that brain scans could be really useful for in, in diagnosing and, and treating mental health disorders, but it's not exactly identifying whether or not you have one. The first is in redeveloping our categorization of different mental health disorders. So at the moment, no two people with depression are exactly the same on a, on a neural level or on a, on a kind of clinical level. Um, in fact, on a clinical level, you can have two patients who don't even share a single symptom in common and yet get the same diagnosis. So that's where I really think brain scans could be more useful in helping us delineate those categories a bit better. But the second area, something that I'm very interested in, is trying to find out if brain scans could tell us more about which brains respond to which treat.
0: Um, So, changing tack slightly, um, it's the Super Bowl tonight, I think. A lot of American footballers are suffering brain damage from repeat collisions. And they were saying they they were detecting this post-mortem by looking at slices of brains. Do you know what they're doing in that case and what they're looking for?
4: Yeah, I went to this great talk on that about a year ago from a lab that does that in Boston. So the PI of that lab had developed this way of pathologically categorizing brains and she found almost like neurodegeneration like what you might see in disorders like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, but in people who'd suffered repeated concussions. And so it looked like their brains were aging at a really rapid rate, even when they were actually quite young. And then they went on to develop sort of dementia like symptoms at a very young age. And some of them even suffered very early deaths. Now, she suffered a huge kind of media firestorm when this first came out, because football is very well funded in the US. And people were not very happy with her conclusions. But her data, it's now been many, many years and seems incredibly robust and sadly, very believable
1: so it's one one thing to watch out for and certainly we've had other people on this program including graham mcshane who has been commissioned to try to design structures for helmets that would dissipate some of the energy from these repeated injuries and also in just soccer people heading balls is said to be sufficiently damaging to your brain when you do it professionally that you do end up with a more rapid aging of the brain under those circumstances so it's a very important point thank you very much for that sam
5: I'm Phil Sansom, and I host the Naked Genetics podcast. Genetics is huge right now, from those home DNA testing kits to futuristic gene therapies to treat diseases. And if, like me, you're just trying to get a grip on what genes can and can't tell you, then this might be the show for you. Each month, we are telling scientific detective stories and shining a light in directions you might not expect, like gene sequencing a puppy. oh, oh biscuit or maybe tearing apart a flower oh boy you've taken all the parts off well that one i messed up so that shows you how, <laughs> how good he had to get at this and even drinking a bunch of gin <laughs> very refreshing. don't miss out subscribe to naked genetics wherever you get your podcasts
1: Still to come, why was cyanide Agatha Christie's poison of choice? We'll be finding out. Also, how you might be able to improve your memory? And uh, does soy make your body produce estrogen? We might have heard of phytoestrogens. How does that work? Meanwhile, here's the next part of our Guess Who game for you at home. We heard the noise that this bizarre thing makes. This is that again. And the second clue is these things are exclusive to the Americas. What do you think they are? Let us know if you have any clues. Before that, though, uh, I have to ask you a question, Sam, which is we've heard from Sam, actually, who says, when you boil vegetables in water, the water changes colour. Is there anything nutritious in that water? Should I drink it? What do you reckon?
0: Well, the answer is there will be some uh, nutritious things in the water. We all need, in addition to protein, carbohydrate and fat that we eat in our diet, a range of vitamins and minerals. Vitamins are broken down into two large classes, water-soluble ones and lipid-soluble ones. And the water-soluble ones will leach out of the vegetables and into the water. And so they will be in the water. Now, it's not perfect because some vitamins get broken down by heat so the most famous one of these is vitamin c where if you boil anything containing vitamin c it will be destroyed and there was actually an arctic expedition which went terribly terribly wrong because they had taken vitamin c they understood they need it but to preserve it they boiled all the vitamin c and they all got scurvy drinking their boiled lime juice so why did they boil it and not freeze it I don't know. <laughs> it would have been the question. obvious thing to say. Probably do, because it? they needed to get it from somewhere warmer down to the Arctic. But yeah, that would have been a good point. I would say there's a word of caution with this because. The amount of vitamins in the water you've boiled will be relatively low compared to your vegetables. And if you're a fan of cookery shows, you will see that all the chefs on them dumping piles of salt into the water to make their boiled vegetables taste great. So I was looking at the nutritional information on some vegetable stock, and it was going to get you about 3% at most, of the most rich vitamin in it, of your daily requirement, and it will, for the same volume, 46% of your sodium. So probably best to eat the vegetables. You can always use it as a nice tasty vegetable stock for cooking Well
1: That was what I was going to say, because I don't know about you, Sam, but my practice at home is to cook the potatoes, steam the vegetables above the potatoes, and then everything, of course, is like refluxing around in the saucepan, and you get the water around the spuds, which you can then drain off fantastic for gravy when added to the drippings from the meat that you've been roasting so then you can mix the whole lot because this fantastic gravy and, and as long as you don't heat it too much i presume and you're not too bothered about the vitamin c because you can supplement that in other ways with the after dinner fruit then you will actually as you say uh, recover some of those vitamins and it tastes damn good absolutely but be careful <laughs> with the salt when you're doing it no matt can you help ken out katie's red ken's question which is this one
3: what's a gravitational slingshot
2: so it's a maneuver that people use in astro engineering for spacecraft to uh, gain a velocity boost by bypassing an astronomical body. So normally like a planet or a moon or something. So if you think about, you know, a spacecraft flying through space, in order to get it to speed up or slow down, you need some energy. And energy can't be created or destroyed, right? That's one of the most fundamental things about physics. But it can be moved around from place to place. And so if you uh, do a flyby of a planet, it's possible to kind of steal some of the energy, some of the momentum from that planet and transfer it to the spacecraft. I get the
1: point that if I aim myself at a distant body, let's say I'm pointing towards Jupiter... I'm going to feel the gravitational acceleration that Jupiter has on me. So I'm going to speed up towards Jupiter a bit. But then when I go past Jupiter, why, why don't I lose the nudge that it's given me again? Why don't I have to give it back? Because obviously I don't want to follow Jupiter around forever. I want to go where I want to go. So why don't I lose the energy again?
2: It's all a matter of getting the angles right. So you are exactly right. As you go towards Jupiter, for example, you'll speed up and speed up as you're pulled in by its gravitational fields. And, you know, under normal circumstances, you would swing around and then lose all that energy. But by carefully working out the angles, uh, this is why we call it a gravitational flyby. you can kind of calculate it just right so you actually leave with a bit more energy than you gained. Often the analogy that gets used is a bit like bouncing a tennis ball off a speeding train, right? So if you see a train coming towards you at the station, you, throw, you can gently throw a tennis ball at it and then it will hit the train at 100 miles an hour and go flying off, right? And that's stolen some energy from the train. Ah, so the ball would not only bounce back towards you, but it would
1: also be going sideways. With the train, is that what you're saying?
2: Right, it is, exactly, yes. It's, it's, it's the gain in momentum, basically. Um, obviously, nothing comes for free. So as you as the spacecraft has gained a bit of energy, the, the planet also has to lose that energy, right? So just as the spacecraft leaves going faster, the planet is left going a tiny bit slower after the spacecraft has left.
1: So you basically plan your journey so that you would aim towards Jupiter. And as Jupiter's in the right position, it's accelerating you. But then Jupiter on its orbit moves out of the way, but you're by then moving on on a new trajectory. But you've gained a bit of a push in the right direction, and and you keep repeating that cycle in various ways to just gain more and more free energy, as it were, off of the planets that give it to you, to give yourself ultimately more
2: speed. Exactly, yes. And planning the journey is actually very, very important uh, because you you obviously need a planet to be in the way of your trajectory in order to get one of these flybys. Uh, There was a very nice fortuitous one in the late 1970s when the Voyager missions got sent off. There was what was called the Grand Tour, so the four outer planets, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, were all in a nice line. And so we could gravitational slingshot through all of them and get a very, very nice boost into the outer solar system. Thank you very
1: much, Matt. Back here on earth though, meanwhile Lorna, very much down to earth with this story. Agatha Christie, of course, very famous novelist and one of my favourite novelists and one of her favourite poisons, I, I'm told, I didn't realise this and, until I read this question, uh, was cyanide. Why, why was cyanide her poison of choice and, and is, it, is it a good choice?
3: Well I can't say specifically what was going through Agatha Christie's mind when she decided to use cyanide so much But she was a trained pharmacist so she did have a pharmaceutical background Which is why she used so many poisons in her books But I do have a question for the panel which is How many of Agatha Christie's characters did die from cyanide poisoning?
2: Is the answer I feel like 0 would be a very QI type answer. <laughs>
3: no, it's not it's not 0.
2: <laughs> Sadly I need my wife here. She's mm-hmm. a massive Agatha Christie
0: fan. <laughs> I am not. So I'm going to guess. I'm going to go with 3.
3: Okay. She actually killed 18 characters in total using cyanide. And so cyanide is in 10 of her books and four of her short novels. But cyanide has all these kind of historical connotations and it's not actually as common as what you would believe. It's just unfortunately that it's been used in some really horrible events throughout history.
1: How does it work, Lorna? What does cyanide do to you to kill you?
3: It slows down your respiratory system, so it's to do with your blood and it binds with your blood and you can't breathe any more effectively. But it's all to do with, as well, how the cyanide is packaged as to how good it's going to be within your bloodstream. When you're talking about cyanide, you're just talking about a carbon and a nitrogen functional group. So if you're looking at like sodium cyanide or potassium cyanide, for example, and it's about the strength of the bond between whatever else it's attached to and that CN, which is why hydrogen cyanide is so powerful because the bond between the hydrogen and the cyanide group is so weak.
1: So it, it's happy to surrender the, it, its cyanide onto parts of your body and disable them?
3: Yes, exactly. There are antidotes and cures for cyanide poisoning now, but obviously you have to be extremely fast acting to do that.
1: So, it, So it is a good choice of way to get rid of someone then?
3: It is relatively quick acting, but you wouldn't really want to use that in nowadays terms. You could always detect it regardless. In a lot of Agatha Christie's novels, she would say that it would taste of bitter almonds. And it's actually that bitter almonds smell of cyanide rather than... Because they they
1: do contain it, don't they? Yes, they do.
3: Lots of different things in nature contain cyanide. So apple pips, for example, will contain it, your apricot pips. But you do need to have a ridiculous amount before it's going to do you any harm. Yeah, I think
1: we calculated you'd have to eat something like your own body weight in apple pips, or in apples rather, to get enough amygdalin, which is the cyanide source in mm. apple pips in order to actually compromise yourself yeah. so you'd, you'd probably die of poisoning from overeating apples before you actually died of cyanide poisoning yeah. i think was our conclusion do <laughs> so you think you're on safe but territory then yeah i think you're, you're probably okay. i don't think
3: you have to set the angle. oh i sold an <laughs> apple pip i'm now going to die you don't need to go to any for that one you'll be okay
1: thank you very much lorna
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
3: Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for your audio and video productions.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist, I'm Chris Smith and with me this week are a panel of experts answering your science questions. They are astronomer Matt Bothwell, toxicologist Lorna Nesbitt, neuroscientist Camilla Nord and physiologist Sam Virtue. Meanwhile, can you guess what our guess who creature is for this week? I told you that it sounds like this. I also said these animals are found all over the Americas and the next clue, they're actually named after another animal. Anyone in the studio got any ideas? Anyone like to speculate what this might be?
3: I have absolutely no idea, but I would imagine it's like some sort of bird-type creature. We're going for a bird. It's not no. a bird,
1: Lorna. <laughs> not a bird. Right, this is the part of the show you've all been waiting for. It is quiz time. It's your time to test your metal. OK? This is the Naked Scientist quiz, and you're competing for a prize beyond price, which is to be the Naked Scientist big brain of the month. And our two teams are going to be Matt and Lorna, your team one, and Camilla and Sam, your team, too. Three rounds. Round one, this is Eight-Legged Friends. So, Matt and Lorna, all the spiders on Earth could eat the entire human race in a year. Is that science fact or is that science fiction?
2: I've never oh, really God. thought about this before. Um... What a bizarre question. <laughs> um, I mean, it's just... Think about the. I'm going to say it's almost certainly not true because I think I remember telling because creatures are measured in terms of biomass, right? Yeah. And I'm sure I remember reading that the biomass of the human race like vastly outstrips most other animals by, by a very long way. But
3: they do reproduce much quicker. So if you think about it, within a year, you wouldn't just be looking at all the spiders that are currently in the world. You'd be looking at all the spiders plus all the future spiders within the space of the year.
2: Uh. Good point. But
3: I might just be more complicated. Are they, are they <laughs> so what are you
2: going to go for? Are you going, to, are you going, to, are you going true or
1: false? Do you think all the spiders on Earth could eat the human race I, in a year? I, think? I, my instinct would be false. OK, false. You're going false. No, actually, uh, Lorna and Matt, this is true. Apparently all the spiders on Earth could eat humanity in under a year the reference, if you want to read them up, Martin Neifler and Klaus Burkoffer uh, said that the 25 million tonnes of spiders on Earth could consume the human race because they eat between 400 million and 800 million tonnes of prey per year and that means that spiders could easily eat as much meat as all of the 7.5 billion humans on the planet put together. And for comparison, us humans eat only about 400 million tonnes of meat and fish every year. So we actually eat less than all the spiders on Earth, the human race, and uh, collectively there are a lot of them. So you are on the the right lines, Lauren, the Right, Unfortunately, you're yet to get a point, you two. Over to team two, that's Camilla and Sam. So Camilla and Sam, what came first, the spider family or the rings of Saturn? You have to keep quiet, Matt. What do you think about that, you two?
0: Again, a question I had not contemplated before. Astronomical time versus spiders.
4: I'm going to be real. This is just a guess. I have no, like...
0: All right, what do you want to go for?
4: Um, I think we've been relatively pro-spider so far so i might stay on team spider
0: let's go team spider and it'll probably turn out the rings of saturn are
1: older than earth or something No, your, your, your instincts were correct spiders are older you two than the rings of saturn well done the rings of saturn are we believe relatively young astronomically speaking aren't they matt Can you tell us how old they are?
2: Yeah, they uh, formed around the same time as the other dinosaurs died out, we reckon, somewhere around between 60 and 100 million years ago.
1: 100 million years old. And this is supposition largely, but based on the idea that they're a bit too clean and shiny to be terribly old, because were they very old, they would have been decorated by dirt and they would be dull, and instead of being nice and pristine and white. Spiders, on the other hand, came along about 400 million years ago, and the spiders as we would recognise them probably from about 380 million years ago. So spiders predate the rings of saturn so well done you two uh, you're off the
2: mark one point yes matt uh, the rings are interesting the rings of saturn are also disappearing the, the rings are raining down onto saturn at the moment so in about 100 million years time just like eclipses uh, the rings of saturn will no longer be with us <laughs> so
1: make the most of them while you
2: can
4: <laughs> will spiders entirely outlive the rings of saturn as well
2: i would not be surprised
1: <laughs> <laughs> round two is called nobel causes just what we did there right so back to uh matt and lorna how many nobel prizes have the curie family won is it a2 b3 or c4
3: i don't think two i think they would have got more than that yeah I, I, it's, I, I, it's I, the family yeah yeah so, I, I will trust your instincts on this oh no that's this is awful <laughs> um well, should we just go sl- sl- like straight in the middle and go for three yeah let's do it yeah
1: Three. Okay. So you're going three, and that is a. It's actually four. Would you believe Marie won two, just on herself. Obviously, one was shared with uh, with Pierre, her husband. Their daughter Irène uh, Joliot-Curie received one with her husband for discovering artificial radioactivity, and uh, Henri La who who is Marie's other son-in-law, he got the Peace Prize on behalf of UNICEF in 1965. Total of four. Incredible, isn't it?
3: I don't feel so guilty now considering the the chemistry ones and only oh. one piece. <laughs> OK,
1: let's go back to uh, Camilla and Sam who we want to know how many people have won multiple Nobel Prizes in science? So we've heard about the Curie family winning four between the lot of them but how many people have actually won multiple prizes just themselves? Is it A, one, B, three or C, five?
4: So I think Marie Curie is the only one to have won a prize in two topics,
0: but Fred Sanger definitely won two. Yeah, so he got two.
4: Sorry, what were the multiple choices? One, uh, you
0: can go one, three, or five. So we're safe. It's not one because we can name two people. We're safe. It's not one. I, I think we go three. Okay. What do you reckon?
4: I mean, I would even go as high as five, but I don't mind. I three think it's feels comfortable. Rare. Okay. I think it's pretty
5: rare.
1: You're going three, and the answer is. Yep, it is Good Marie one. Curie. John Bardeen and Frederick Sanger all have two Nobel Prizes in Sciences. Linus Pauling also won two Nobels. He's the only person to have two solo prizes. One of them was in Peace. So there you go. Two marks to you, Sam and Camilla. Well done. Back to Matt and Lorna. Let's see if you can uh, get off the ground with this one. But This round is called That's Cheesy. Question one. Milk is acidic. Is that science fact or science fiction?
3: I should doubly know that. I love the Yeah, This is is way more your area than mine, though.
2: I mean, my instinct is yes, but based on my the track record, maybe that means we should answer no. <laughs> what are you going to go know, for? I think
4: no. You're you
3: going to go no. false? You want to
2: go think, false? I think, I
1: think false, with your <laughs> No, I'm really sorry to say that, um, actually, it's true. Despite being touted as a cure for heartburn, for example, milk actually contains lactic acid because there's a lot of lactose in milk. It has a pH of about 6.5, and that falls further as the milk sours. The calcium in milk also encourages stomach acid release, which means it does make your heartburn worse later, paradoxically. So it's not a good remedy for indigestion. Question two, back to uh, Sam and Camilla. The yellow and red colours in some cheese is produced by the action of microbes as the cheese matures. Science fact or science fiction?
4: Some of it's definitely food colouring, but I grew up partly in the US, so that's a biased yeah. answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ooh, I
0: don't know. I mean, like. So what's red Leicester colour? I'm going to say it's true. I I reckon it sounds like it. I mean, I know that the green in Stilton is mould, so it depends. So I reckon, yeah, why not? True. You're going true? Yeah.
1: I'm afraid that actually while blue cheeses do indeed owe their colour to the growth of mould within the cheese, red cheeses like red Leicester owe their colour to the addition of a vegetable dye which is called annatto and that's added during the production to give them their colour. So I'm really sorry you didn't get that one right. But you have nonetheless at the end of round three scored two points, which is two more than our <laughs> the other two. So you are this week's Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week. You get a round of applause. Well done, our winners who are... Am I the only person who's going to... Are you going to be such sore losers? I'm going to give him a round of applause? Come on. You. Well done. Well done. Prize beyond prize, which is you are our big-brained winners of the week with two points. And you didn't get to do our tiebreaker, so I I won't subject that to you. Now, Camilla, back to the questions. This one's for you, and uh, it's from George, who says, wants to know, how do addictions get going in the first place? Why do people get addicted to things, and how does it work?
4: So I think of the start of addictions as needing sort of three ingredients – you need vulnerabilities in trait, vulnerabilities in your current state, and then exposure to the addictive substance. So those are kind of the three factors. What I mean by trait is something genetic or earlier in your life, environmental, that has predisposed you to either try, and if you try, then become dependent on a particular substance. So there's a fair amount of research on certain genetic polymorphisms that make you more or less susceptible to, say, alcohol dependence. Sometimes this is a general susceptibility, like it would apply to any kind of substance, but sometimes it's very specific, like there's a mutation in the mu opioid receptor that makes you more susceptible to opioid addictions, at least in one paper. So that's the kind of stuff you can't really control, your background. Then there's also vulnerabilities in your current state. So people are much more likely to develop addictions when they're in a stressed or distressed state. People are more likely to to try and then to also become dependent on different substances in those kinds of states. And then the very third thing is trying a substance that can become addictive. And that is a little bit independent. So most people who've used drugs recreationally don't become dependent. So the two are not totally interlinked and they seem to be conferred by different types of risk. You might have a risk to try a drug, um, both state and trade, but you might not have the risk to become dependent on that particular drug.
1: Don't forget, we have our Guess Who competition running. You're into the last 10 minutes of this. Can you tell us? No one's managed to get this right so far. Can you tell us what this thing is? It sounds like this. They live in the Americas. They're actually named after another animal and they're a kind of primate that can live for up to 30 years. There you go. I'm not going to tell you any more than that. Can you get it right from that? Now Sam, got this question here which says are there any special fat burning zones in the body? That's from Sarah?
0: There's a couple of ways of thinking about this question. So we can think about the organs of our body that maybe use more or less fat. And for example, the heart will use a lot more fat relative to other fuels that it can use for energy like glucose. But weirdly, I think if we had to pick one place as the fat burning zone of the body, it would be an organ that uses no fat at all. And that's the brain. Because how heavy we are and how much energy we expend, a huge amount of it is under the control of our brain. And so we can think about just how tightly our body weight is controlled by thinking about how much food we eat, not, for example, in a day, but in a lifetime. And that's about eight tons of food. And yet our body doesn't change weight a huge amount, even though we will quite regularly completely change the amount of food we eat from day to day. If we have a big Sunday lunch, we may eat many more than the 2000 calories and we won't even consciously think about it. But our body will adjust to reduce our caloric intake and burn our fat.
1: That's extraordinary. Eight tonnes in an average human lifetime.
0: About that. And if we chuck in water, that gets up to about 38 tons. So you can have an articulated lorry
1: is about that weight. My goodness. And you're saying that basically my body's keeping tabs on how many calories I'm I'm shoving down my throat and it's either gearing up or gearing down my metabolism and my desire to eat to compensate to keep things about even Stevens.
0: Pretty much, yeah. And it's actually one of the biggest puzzles of obesity is the Western world, on average, is getting heavier by about one kilo a year. And that's explaining the obesity epidemic. But actually, it's a really, really subtle defect. It's like half a glass of milk per day. So the question is, how have our brains gone wrong, but such a tiny amount in order to lead to this? It's not some spectacular decompensation. Uh
4: I read some fascinating work on the origins of obesity about it two years ago. And what it showed is that although some kind of very rare genetic differences might make you metabolically susceptible to obesity, actually, for the most part, the only kinds of genetic associations that you can find with obesity are behavioural or are kind of in the brain and how satiated you feel after meals or how much you desire food. And those subtle changes only actually manifest as obesity if you grow up in what the authors called a kind of obesogenic environment. So you need both, kind of like addictions, I suppose. You need this trait vulnerability, and then you need the state to actually have any effect on the body.
0: Absolutely. And so there's been a a field of idea about this obesogenic environment that we would have been evolutionarily benefited in times of uh, low nutrient availability by being able to store large quantities of food. But that leads to a problem because the question then comes, why isn't everyone obese? Because we all have access to huge amounts of caloric dense food. And there's a counter argument. There's something that actually is acting and has evolved to force our weight down. And one of the ideas is predation. And the concept is if you are a very fat mouse, you are more likely to be picked off by an eagle. So there may be some advantages to having an upper limit on your body weight as well. I hope there aren't any
1: eagles that like preying on human-sized things hovering up up above. Matt, I've got a question here from Jack who says, what is a white hole? We've heard of black holes, but what's a white one?
2: Um, so the answer is quite simple in, in a number of ways. So a white hole is basically a mirror image of a black hole. Think about what a black hole is. It's an object in space that can take in matter and light. And there's this boundary around it right, that we call the event horizon. And once you cross the event horizon, you can never come out. Um, a white hole is basically the, the flip side of that, right? So it's an object in space from which light and matter can escape. So, so white holes, you know, could easily just kind of spew matter and light out constantly. I spoke to Michio Kaku.
1: And when he came to Cambridge, he was promoting a book and he gave a talk. And his contention was that perhaps a black hole in one universe sucks stuff in and ejects it through a white hole in a parallel universe. Does that sound plausible?
2: I mean, I think even the concept of parallel universes is uh, heavily up for debate. So I think I might pass on that one. But but the point of the white hole is that it's surrounded by this boundary, like an opposite of event horizon, uh, which you could never cross, uh, no matter how powerful your, your rocket engines.
1: Well, Michio Kaku's contention was that that could be a big bang in a new universe. So in the same way that we have a Big Bang that we think created our universe and led to the conversion of all that energy into the materials that now make up the universe we inhabit, that perhaps a white hole is spawning a new universe somewhere else, uh, to put it bluntly, the arse end of a black hole in this universe. Does that
2: seem at all reasonable? Um, Yeah, I think it certainly seems reasonable. You can construct solutions to Einstein's field equations that do this kind of thing. Um, Yeah, whether it is true in reality or not, I think, remains to be seen. But it's definitely a nice idea.
1: Well, why your brain is warped on that one, Lorna, here's a question for you from Eric, who says, do you have a window before poisons disappear from the body? We were sort of talking about this a little bit earlier when we were saying, you know, what would be the perfect murder weapon? But on average, what's the rough time you have between someone administering something and then it disappearing from the body? And what determines that?
3: Well, that depends on how the body breaks it down. So it's called something called the half-life. And that's just basically the time it takes for half of the drug to get out of your body. And that's dependent on a whole load of different things and lots of different biological and physiological models. But some are obviously extremely quick to get out of your system, like GHB, and others are really, really long-lasting. So arsenic, for example, you can exhume people and you can still find that in their body. It also depends on what you're actually testing people for things like your bloodstream a lot of your drugs will come out of that relatively quickly but your hair is constantly growing and as your blood is circulating around as your hair grows it incorporates in some of that drug into your hair so theoretically you should be able to get a timeline of somebody's drug abuse by taking hair but it isn't a strand of hair it's a full pencil just to get that myth away.
1: Thank you very much, Lorna. Now, before I reach the end of the program, I forget to tell you, Moira got in touch and said, is the mystery thing a baboon? You are the closest of everybody, Moira, but it's not quite right, but you're the closest. It is a primate. It's a spider monkey. That was the thing that we were playing you the sound of a spider monkey. Now, Camilla, here is a question that Phil has for you. He's eager to improve his cognition.
5: Are there any ways I can improve my memory, which is pretty bad, to be honest? And if so, what are
1: they? I don't think his memory is bad, but uh, he, <laughs> he obviously does. What can he do to boost his recall powers?
4: So I want to know if he wants the bad news or the good news first.
1: I think he just wants you to hit him okay, with the, with okay. the answer. All right.
4: So first I'm going to say, I think, bad news, which is that all those kind of brain training apps and games are not proven to improve your memory on anything beyond that specific game. You can get really good at whatever they're training you on, but it doesn't actually generalize to other things, which is a bit of a downer. Um, Similarly, there is a kind of big community who are quite keen for using sort of brain hacking techniques like brain stimulation to improve their memory. And that can work in a sort of short-term scenario, but similarly, it tends not to generalize. And even if it did, it wouldn't kind of last to the extent that you'd hope to improve your memory. But there are a couple things that do seem to work. Two are obvious, and one is cool. So obvious, sleep is a massive way to improve your memory. I've seen some really convincing work that even if you just take a quick rest, not necessarily falling asleep, just sort of closing your eyes, mindfulness type thing after trying to learn stuff, that makes you way, way, way better at remembering, which is kind of cool. And also exercise tends to make short-term memory and other types of memory a bit better. But the surprising one is caffeine. Not caffeine taken before you start trying to learn something, as as many people like to do, but actually caffeine taken right after. This is a paper from a couple years ago in Nature Neuroscience that showed that if you give a caffeine pill right after trying to memorise something, it makes people better at remembering it.
1: That will, paradoxically, though, stop you going to sleep, which might offset the effect of that, wouldn't it?
4: (laughs) Yeah, you'd have to balance the two.
1: (laughs) Get the timing right. But you're you're dead right about the sleep because time and again, studies have shown that if you give people a sequence of things to learn and then either sleep deprive them or encourage them to head off and have a good night's sleep, the recall and the performance, and not just the immediate recall and performance, but the long-term retention of the memory seems to be much better when people have had a chance to sleep on it.
4: Yeah. And that's quite different from something like actually something I didn't mention, like smart drugs, where you can improve your performance on attention or how quickly you're working, but it doesn't at the moment, seem to have those kind of long-term improvements that people often want from a memory enhancer.
1: And one wonders whether, because you mentioned exercise, whether that's just because when you take physical exercise, you tend to sleep better afterwards. So it's whether the sleep is what is actually helping to consolidate the memory or whether the thing that, that emerged in the early days of studying these new cells that are born in the brain, which are born in, in the area of the hippocampus, which is involved in forming memories, of course. And exercise, as well as sex And antidepressants turned out to be a potent stimulus to make more of those cells. So one wonders which of these effects or all of the effects are are at play.
4: Yes. A a kind of additional possibility is that the exercise-dependent effects on mood, which are really quite substantial, could themselves improve memory because having low mood tends to come with sort of worse short-term memory.
1: So there you go, Matt. Now you know how you can can not only... (laughs) map out your solar system, you can remember the names of all the stars and planets as well.
2: That would be very useful.
1: Quick one for you, Sam. We've got this question here, which says, uh, this person says, I've heard that eating soy increases your oestrogen production. Does it?
0: As far as I can tell, no, it doesn't. But... Soy contains some chemicals that mimic the body's own estrogens, called phytoestrogens and the history of these is quite good. They were first observed in 1926 but we didn't actually know they could do anything until the farmers in the 1940s and 50s noticed that pastures of their sheep were not getting pregnant and if you're a lamb farmer that's something you want them to do. And they discovered that the red clover of the sheep it was eating was so rich in these phytoestrogens, they had effectively put their entire flock on the pill.
1: Are they effectively then molecules that look like estrogen and work like estrogen, but they're not estrogen?
0: Exactly. And actually it gets a little complicated because the estrogens may have some potency on the estrogen receptor and the phytoestrogens, but it may not be as strong as our body's own. And so this means they can act to both promote estrogen signaling in some um, people
1: or suppress it in others. And so what would be the impact on things like diseases? Because we're worried about the role of hormones in some diseases like breast cancer.
0: Absolutely. And so this is why I mentioned the fact that they can be both promoting insulin signalling and blocking insulin signalling. So the evidence seems to be from the majority of studies into soy itself that it does not promote cancer and may even actually be protective of cancer in some individuals, but it's, it's not certain.
4: Does that mean that women trying to get pregnant shouldn't eat soy or were the sheep a different kind of experience?
0: I think that based on the stuff I read, you would need to eat a very, very large amount of soy for it to be an effective contraceptive.
1: You'd basically have to become a sheep. So you're you're probably all right. Thank you very much, Sam. Now, Lorna, we've got this question for you, which is, Andrea says... What sorts of drugs and poisons do you see a lot? What should people watch out for? I mean what what tends to be the the main way that people tend to bump people off these days? Agatha Christie we said very fond of cyanide and rat poison's gone out of favour a bit since you can't get it anymore but what are people tending to resort to?
3: When people um, try and effectively bump each other off they either tend to be quite planned out or they generally are just things that are heat in the moment so you don't get a huge amount of poisonings anymore the instrumentation that we use is now so sensitive that it's detecting way, way lower concentrations than ever before. So poisoning as a route and a way of killing somebody is really quite unfavourable. And the last time that we really seen somebody doing that would probably be kind of like the Stephen Port case where he was using GHB to kill um, people that he was meeting in Grinder. And that's only because that substance is endogenous in the body. So we don't know how long, you know, like how much he had in it to begin with. Um, so it's not that common anymore.
1: Can I ask you a question which is sort of related? Because we've had a lot of issues with people doping in athletics and that also is putting foreign molecules into the body which people with instruments like the ones you're referring to can detect. When people give themselves a big blood transfusion with blood that they banked from, say, two months ago, so they took some blood out of themselves, froze it down and then they thaw it out before a big race and reinfuse it, Could you detect that?
3: So, yeah, they can um, detect that, but that's got to get done by a specialist um, toxicologist, which is not something that I am am capable of doing. But But how do
1: you tell someone's got their own blood?
3: Because they'll be looking at um, the different biomarkers within it and they'll be looking at the different oxygen consumption and various different other telltale signs within it. But that's done by kind of the WADA labs, so King's College London, for example, and they have to be specialised for that work.
0: So I work in uh, the field of obesity and diabetes, and I've read insulin being used as a murder weapon in several detective novels. Have you ever come across that? And would it still work with modern day insulin preparations?
3: Yes, you could. Nicotine patches is another one. A lot of medication is getting misused and mishandled. And so... Anything can actually kill you. It's just about the dose. So, And we've known that since about the 1600s with Paracelsus, who said the dose makes the poison. So, yeah.
1: But I think the the point that, that you're referring to, Sam, is that some of these insulin preparations that we give patients are a little bit different than just the stuff that comes out of your pancreas. So can you tell the difference?
3: Well, you would be able to look at the concentration of insulin within somebody anyway. It's not going to be a small amount of insulin that you're going to have to give somebody. It's not the same as doing like a diabetic injection. So it's about the concentrations and that's why I love what I do so much because you're working in the grey and you have to put all these different parts together.
1: Thank you very much, Lorna. And there, we must leave it, I'm afraid. But thank you very much for listening and for sending in your questions. Thanks to our panel, Matt Bothwell, Lorna Nesbitt, Camilla Nord and Sam Virtue. And thanks to Adam Murphy, who put the programme together. Join us at the same time next week, when we're going to be finding out about the uses and abuses of the body clock.
4: And are you
3: a science radio producer or presenter? Or would you like to be? Because the Naked Scientists are hiring. We're looking for a fun, enthusiastic and energetic person eager to join our team full time and help make programmes like this one. To find out if you fit the bill, head over to nakedscientist.com job. We're in the final days of the job advert now, so you've only got until the 7th of February to apply. Head over to our website to get your application in. That's nakedscientist.com
2: slash job.
1: The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye.